and then to turn over to Acts chapter 7 with me. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time of worship we could share, and I thank you for all those who ministered to us on the worship team and led us so well in song this morning. I pray that you would help us now to worship you by looking at your word, by considering it, and then help us, Lord, to apply it to our lives each and every day, the days of this week and the days ahead. Lord, change us because we've looked at your word this morning, and change us to be more like Jesus, for it's in his name we pray. Amen. In our two sermons on Acts chapter 6, we were introduced to Stephen. In verses 1 to 7, Stephen's name was the first name on the list of deacons chosen by the disciples to help serve in the early church. As one of the chosen deacons, Stephen was described as a man of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit, wisdom, and faith. When we preached on verses 1 through 7, we focused our attention on the introduction of deacons and their role in the early church. This emphasis dovetailed with our introduction of the deacons of Remini Fellowship. We declared the areas of ministry they would oversee. We committed them to their ministries in prayer. We asked God to help them in the work of serving the body of Christ and supporting the elders here in this local church. Last week, Mike West preached on verses 8 to 15, and he was able to delve more deeply into the man, Stephen, his work for God, and the reasons he was seized and brought before the Jewish ruling council. In these verses, Stephen is described as a man full of grace and power, enabled by God to do great wonders and signs among the people. When opponents arose and disputed with Stephen, we read, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. There was something special about Stephen's words. Which of us here this morning would not desire to have the kind of character and ministry Stephen had? Wouldn't we all like to be described as of good reputation, full of the spirit, wise, full of faith, full of grace, full of power? May God help us to be more like Stephen, as Stephen was a reflection of Jesus and his glory. Now, if God were to make us like Stephen, there is one thing we would know for certain. We would be opposed. We would face persecution and trials as the enemies of Christ would line up against us. Satan fears men and women who display the type of Christ-like character Stephen did. The world hates Christians because the light always exposes the darkness. These enemies of Jesus will oppose any work in our lives that reminds them of Stephen's character because that character reminds them of Jesus. In chapter 7, Luke now records Stephen's words as he answers the question that the high priest asks him in verse 1, pointedly asking him if the charges of blasphemy brought against him are true. What comes next is the longest discourse 
in the book of Acts, 52 verses in length, and yes, we're covering them all this morning. Barbecue should start about 1.30 or so. Uh, My ESV calls this passage Stephen's speech. I'm not sure speech is the right title for Stephen's words here. We would expect the words in chapter 7 to be Stephen's defense. But as Mike pointed out last week, Stephen doesn't seem to be interested in defending himself. Instead, he goes on the attack. He becomes a prosecutor and puts his accusers on trial. He faithfully bears witness to the hypocrisy of those who claimed he spoke against Moses, spoke against the temple, and sought to change the customs Moses had delivered to the Jews. Unfortunately, this passage is too long for me to read to you and still have time to preach on it. I thought I'd read it and then just say our time was up, but I was was sure you were probably expecting a little bit more than that this morning. Now, those of you who know me know that it was a difficult decision for me not to read the verses I'm preaching on, even given their length. Those of you who know me also know that I'm a high school math teacher by trade, so what I'm about to do next shouldn't surprise you. I'm going to give you a homework assignment. You are to read Acts 7, 1 to 53 yourself this week. And I don't want to hear that the dog ate your Bible. I want to hear you forgot to write your assignment down in your notebook. Don't make me give you a bad grade on this. In today's sermon, it's necessary to paint with a broad brush. That is, to summarize many verses without getting lost in any of the details. I'd like to divide our thoughts this morning in this way. Number one, what was the main point of Stephen's discourse? And then I want to spend most of our time asking us this question. What can we learn from Stephen to help us when we face opposition? So first, what was the main point of Stephen's words? Stephen's words, when you read them, are an extended Old Testament history lesson in which Stephen selects incidents from the lives of Abraham and Joseph and Moses with the majority of the words speaking about Moses. That makes sense, doesn't it, when we remember that the charges against him were that he blasphemed against Moses and that he wanted to change the customs and laws Moses brought to the Israelites. Twice, Stephen repeats the words of the Israelite from Exodus 2.14 who asked Moses Who made you ruler and judge over us? In verse 35, Stephen reminds his accusers that their forefathers rejected Moses. And in verse 39, he states that our fathers refused to obey him. He accuses his accusers of having a selective memory when it comes to their love for and reverence of Moses and his leadership. Moses certainly deserves to have a prominent place in Jewish history, but Stephen wants them to remember how Moses' leadership was called into question and rejected repeatedly by the Israelites of Moses' day. Let me remind you all of 
some of this history that those Jews apparently had forgotten. Our look at Moses starts in Exodus, and again, Exodus 2 is where those words, who made you ruler over us, occur. God then, as most of you, I hope, know, brings about the freeing of the Israelites from Egypt through the great wonders of the ten plagues and through the leadership of Moses and Aaron. So after being freed from Egypt and having marched out into the wilderness, the Israelites find themselves at the Red Sea. You remember the story? And at the Red Sea, they're looking at the sea in front of them, and they turn around, and there behind them is the Egyptian army. Pharaoh had changed his mind. And so what do they do? They show great faith in the God who had saved them and rescued them through the ten plagues and wonders and signs. No, they turned on Moses. They said to Moses, weren't there enough graves in Egypt? You brought us out here to die in the wilderness. Now that's just the beginning. That was Exodus 14. In Exodus 15, they're now across the Red Sea, having been wonderfully rescued from the Egyptian army. And the next thing we read is that they're complaining to Moses because they don't have anything to drink. In Exodus 16, the people grumbled against Moses and Aaron because there was no food. In Exodus 17, they quarreled with Moses asking for water to drink. Every single chapter, quarreling, arguing, grumbling under Moses' leadership. Now, if you know your Old Testament history, you know that in Exodus 20, God gave them the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, and the rest of Exodus and all of Leviticus talk about the laws and regulations that God gave to them and the instructions for building the tabernacle and the story of the Israelites really picks up then in the book of Numbers. So in Numbers 12, we read the very sad account of the fact that Aaron and Miriam, Moses' own brother and sister, grumble against him and question his leadership. In Numbers 14, the report of the spies causes the people to grumble against Moses and Aaron and to, yes, again, wish they had died in Egypt. In number 16, a man named Korah leads a rebellion against Moses, and this is the story where God says, all of you who agree with Moses, or with Korah, and are rebelling against Moses, stand over here for a while. And the rest of Israel move away from them, and God causes the earth to swallow up Korah and all the others who had rebelled against Moses' leadership. And in Numbers 20, the people assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron because there was no water to drink. You get the point? If the Israelites had really remembered their history, they would have remembered that they weren't all that happy with Moses when Moses was their leader. Okay? Stephen uses this history to turn his accuser's words back against them. They were the ones who were disobeying God since they had rejected God's appointed leaders in the past and had now rejected God's very own son, Jesus. So in verses 51 to 53, Mo or 
Stephen uses Old Testament language calling his accusers stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart, and resistors of the Holy Spirit. In the words of the great theologian Eric Lawyer, God had patiently and mercifully sent them messenger after messenger and they had denied them crucifying God's own son was just a part of a history of the same pattern that had existed for years. So in case you missed it somehow, the main point of Stephen's discourse is the claim that his accusers were the ultimate rejectors of God's law. Because in rejecting their God-sent deliverers, especially the ultimate God-sent deliverer, Jesus, they had rejected God himself. And no pseudo-righteous claims, or no pseudo-righteous claims of concern for Moses and the temple could mask their guilt before God. Their concern for Moses was sinfully hypocritical. Next week, Tim Bowditch will share with us the reaction of Stephen's accusers to his scathing criticism of their actions. You may already know or may have guessed they do not react in humility and repentance. I'd like to spend the rest of our time this morning on application, investigating the question, what can we learn from Stephen's words to help us when we face opposition? In our series so far, a number of our men have reminded us that beginning in chapter 4, the ministry of the apostles starts to meet resistance. In chapter 4, we read that the apostles were arrested and brought before the elders and scribes because they were greatly annoyed by the apostles' teaching. They are arrested again in chapter 5, where we read that the high priests and the Sadducees were filled with jealousy, getting a little worse. And when the apostles speak with boldness at their interrogation, the council is enraged and wanted to kill them. The lessons we can learn from Stephen are the lessons we can learn from the early apostles and their response to opposition, the word that keeps arising to describe their response is boldness. Lesson number one in our application is to remind us that when we face opposition, we should speak boldly or be bold and courageously speak the truth. Here in chapter 7, Stephen had the courage to tell his accusers the truth about themselves. A cowardly response would have been to recognize the level of hatred directed towards him, and because of this, to soften his words in an attempt to save his own skin. Stephen doesn't respond this way. He doesn't say, guys, guys, I may have said some things I now regret, and anything I may have said that was an insult to the temple or Moses or any of you, I, I like to apologize for. Sometimes I get carried away, state things too strongly. So let's forget about all those statements and move on, shall we? Nothing to see here. No harm done. I'll be more careful with my words in the future. Stephen doesn't respond with a lame apology in an attempt to do damage control. He powerfully speaks God's truth 
to his accusers, even though he knows his bold words will put him in danger. This is part of the transformation brought about at Pentecost when 12 scared, cowardly disciples who had all run from Jesus when he was crucified became filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And they've now become brave, bold witnesses of the death and resurrection of Jesus, powerfully speaking the gospel message of salvation through Jesus' name to the world around them. And their boldness is rubbing off on men like Stephen. We must proclaim the gospel message today with this same boldness. We have begun to see in our culture a real animosity and opposition to Christianity that seems to be increasing exponentially. It's a math phrase, by the way. I can explain it later if necessary. And those who hate the message of Christ are becoming bolder in their attempts to squelch our witness and the witness of the church in this country. We must respond with courage and boldness, no matter what it costs us personally. So lesson number one from the life of Stephen is that opposition should be met with boldness, courage, and a willingness to speak the truth. Lesson number two is this. When we face opposition, the truth we speak must come from the Word of God. You might easily and appropriately ask the question, hey, Scott, where do you get this from the text? Where is that in Acts chapter 7? I get this point from this fact. Basically, every word Stephen speaks comes from the Old Testament. Stephen's recap of Jewish history is the story of the Old Testament. The Old Testament was the Bible of the Jews. We carry around the Old and New Testaments, and we study and preach from this book in the Jewish synagogues they read and discussed the Old Testament, which was written down on scrolls. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Luke 4, we read that he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath, he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Jewish worship centered around the reading of the Old Testament scrolls and teaching from the Old Testament, just as our worship centers around the Bible, Old and New Testaments. In order to stand in opposition, we don't, in order to stand in the face of opposition, we don't need clever, humanly devised strategies. We need God's Word. If and when you face opposition, whether you stand or fall will largely be determined on how well you know and believe the teachings of this book. So here's my question for you. What is your plan for increasing in your knowledge and understanding of the Word of God? If your answer is, well, I'm here, aren't I, listening to you preach? You know, I'd respond to that in this way. Sunday mornings from 10.30 to 11.15, listening to someone else read and teach from the Bible is not nearly enough. It's just the beginning. You must read the Bible for yourself. 
I'm glad you're here. I'm happy you're paying attention and taking in my message from Acts 7, but, you know, for you, this is secondhand information. If you're a Christian, you have been called to experience God's Word firsthand, to read it and study it for yourself. So I ask you again, what is your plan for knowing this book better? If you're a young Christian, it may well be the case that you've tried to read God's Word for yourself and found that there is a lot you don't understand when you read. That's okay. That's absolutely normal. In the next chapter of Acts, chapter 8, we're going to read about a man from Ethiopia who had come to Jerusalem to worship God, the, the God of the Jews. In Acts, these men are often called God-fearers, Gentiles who worship Yahweh, but hadn't become full converts to Judaism. We find this man from Ethiopia reading the scroll from Isaiah, but not understanding what he's reading. God sends an angel to Philip to tell him to meet this man and explain the scriptures and the good news about Jesus. What I would like to emphasize from that story is this fact. If you don't understand what you're reading, don't stop reading. Find someone who understands that can help you. God sent Philip to the Ethiopian to answer his question about Isaiah 53. Is the prophet talking about himself or somebody else? Now here at Redeemer Fellowship, there are many opportunities to read and discuss God's word. Sunday mornings, in our soon-to-start community groups, great place to read and study God's word together, fit, or simply sitting down with another brother or sister and asking questions about the word of God together. I exhort you to take seriously your responsibility to know the word of God, for the word of God is your best weapon against the opposition you'll face in your Christian life. Lesson number three in our application of this text. In order to stand in face of opposition, you need to know the God of this book. This book is not magical, but it is powerful because it comes from God and it teaches us about God. Now forgive me for a moment for being Captain Obvious. God's word is primarily about God. Okay? If you commit to reading this book, you will find out a lot of truth about yourself. You will find out a lot of truth about the world around you. You'll even find out where the world came from. You'll find out the truth about many things if you read the Bible, but the main purpose of the Bible is to reveal God to us, especially Jesus, God's Son. When we read God's Word, the main question we should ask is what does this passage teach me about God? Let me demonstrate that using Acts 7. If you have your Bible open, look, look in there. Here is a list of some of the things Acts 7 teaches us about God. In verse 2, we find out that God is glorious. In verse 6, we notice that God speaks. Hey, God must be a person. In verse 7, we're told that God judges nations and is worthy of worship. 
In verse 9, we're told that God was with Moses. God's a person who is with his children. In verse 17, we're reminded that God keeps his promises. In verse 20, all right, I got to read verse 20. I'm sorry. Acts 7 verse 20 is amazing. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. That that just deserves a wow. I mean, Moses was beautiful in God's sight? That deserves a sermon of its own. That phrase right there. In verse 25, God gives salvation. And he uses means to do so. He delivers through Moses. In verse 33, we find out that God's holy. In verse 34, we find out that not only does God speak, he sees, he hears, he cares. God is a person. And in verse 49, we find out that God rules from his home in heaven. Now this list I just gave you, it's not exhaustive, it's just a partial list of some of the things that are most obvious from this text about God. Now, when you do your homework assignment, might I encourage you to take a piece of paper, to take a pen or pencil, and add to my list of the things this passage teaches you about God. Each one of these things that I mentioned could also be a starting point for a much larger study of what we call the attributes of God. This is personally one of my favorite things to study in the Bible. The reason the Bible is powerful is not just because it's great literature, which it is, but because it's God's word. And God himself speaks to us in the Bible, and when he speaks to us, he tells us about who he is. When we face opposition, we do so using God's word through the power of the God revealed in his word. When you begin to grasp God in all his powerful glory, then you can more fully appreciate Paul's words in Romans when he said, if God is for us, who can be against us? There is a great verse for us to remember as we seek to stand in the face of opposition. Now, the last lesson that I would like to share from Stephen's words is one last weapon for us to use to help us face opposition. We must be bold and courageously speak the truth. We must be men and women who know both the word of God and the God of the word. But lastly, we need to remember and recount God's works. We must live in the keen awareness of all that God has already done for us if we're a Christian. Here in Acts 7, any Jew who was listening to Stephen would have been reminded of the wonderful works of God on behalf of their forefathers. Here's a short list of the good things God had done for the Israelites as reported in Stephen's history. God had called Abraham and promised him his descendants would become a great nation and occupy a promised land. 
God rescued Joseph from all his afflictions and made him a ruler in Egypt, reunited him with his family, and used him as a means to provide food to save their lives. God spared Moses when he was an infant, and when he was grown, used him to deliver Israel from slavery. God had parted the Red Sea and provided food for all those people for 40 years in the wilderness. And God had given them King David and his son Solomon who built that wonderful temple they were also worried about. Now on a number of occasions in Israel's history, they stopped and built monuments out of stone to commemorate the great works of God. I just read about one this week in 1 Samuel 7 where Samuel, after a great victory over the Philistines, sets up a big stone in honor of God. He calls it Ebenezer. Up until this point, God has been our help. There's a number of Psalms whose main purpose is to remember God's goodness and to worship Him for the great things that He's done. As Christians, when we remember and recount God's good works for us, our faith is strengthened and our ability to face future trials and opposition grows. Remembering God's help in the past enables us to stand in the present. I don't want to sound like an infomercial, but community groups are a great place to share with other Christians the good things that God has done for you in the past and is doing in your life now. One way we can do this is to pray with one another. And then to watch how God answers prayers. And then come back and report to each other how God has been so good to answer your prayers. I want to share with you a particular example of answered prayer from our family's life that is always an encouragement for us to remember. When our girls were young, they faced a number of physical challenges requiring surgery. And it's very hard as a parent to give your child over to someone else, especially when they're going back into that operating room. Scary. On one of these occasions, Debbie specifically prayed that the surgeon and her staff would care for Katie like she was their own child. When it came time, we handed Katie to one of the OR nurses, and just before going through the double doors to the OR, he turned and said to us, don't worry, we always treat each one like they're our own child. Debbie and I looked at each other in amazement at the goodness of God to answer our prayer so specifically and obviously. If you're a Christian, and if you've been a Christian for a long time, I'm sure you can recount many, many times where God has specifically helped you in the past. Whether it was answered prayer, maybe it was just the provision of daily needs, maybe it was an amazing provision for an unusual need in your life. Maybe there were special times where God protected you or gave you needed guidance. Every time we remember and recount these works of God, it strengthens our faith and enables us to stand no matter what the challenges we're facing in the present. If you're a young or new Christian, 
You may not have the history with God that some others have, but you can say what the blind man said in John chapter 9. When he was interrogated by the Jews, he said to them, you know what? I don't really know all that much about Jesus, but this one thing I know, I was blind and now I see. All of us should frequently remember the greatest of God's works on our behalf, our salvation. Mike said last week, if you want to see miracles in our day, preach the gospel and watch people be regenerated. Once we were blind, but God sent his dear son Jesus to die on the cross for us and through his saving work on our behalf, we now have spiritual sight. Every time we remember the things God's done for us, we grow in our faith and in our ability to face trials and opposition. May we grow to the point where our faith is like Job's. Job lost nearly all the earthly blessings God had given to him. And in the midst of his loss, his wife and his best friends became his opponents. Yet in the end, Job was able to make one of the greatest statements of faith in all of the Bible when he said, in all seriousness, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. May God help us to grow in our faith to the point where we live and cling to him and trust him, even if it costs us our lives. This is the kind of faith Stephen possessed, as we'll see next week. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you have done so many things for us in the past. Help us to remember those when trials and opposition come our way. We thank you for your word. We thank you especially that we know you and that you are with us each and every day and you are with us in our trials. You are with us in the dangers of this life. Thank you for your goodness. Help us to be like Stephen, to be bold and courageous, to speak the truth no matter what the cost to us personally. And help us to follow his example and stand strongly for you in the midst of an increasingly dark culture all around us. And we pray this not that our names would become great, but so that Jesus' name would become greater and greater and greater. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.